Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to your podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and during this week of American Thanksgiving, we want to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for joining our global community. Thank you for leaving us a review. (laughs) But seriously, thank you for being a part of our community. We deeply appreciate you, all of you. Uh, We would not be here without you. Thank you, too, to Resource Labs for having us on the network. In fact, to show our appreciation, we're bringing you an episode from another podcast on the Resource Labs network called Suncast. It's hosted by my dear friend and fellow solar warrior, Nico Johnson. And on the show, Nico leverages his nearly two decades of experience in clean energy and emerging markets to help listeners sort through the noise of everything that's going on in this industry and get to the straight insights. You know, just the facts, ma'am. And he talks to a lot of people who are on the front lines of the energy transition. So I hope you enjoy the show from the Suncast podcast. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you so much for giving us the one thing that you won't get back. We want to earn your attention, but your time is non-renewable. And for that, I am in your debt and your gratitude. Today's entrepreneur has bridged the gap between renewable energy and oil and gas. He's a brownfields expert on a mission to turn brownfields into brightfields. And he's recently become the informal chief spokesperson for the agrivoltaics movement here in the United States. If you're unfamiliar with Dan French, well, you're in for a real treat, as he's one of the most genuinely creative and energetic entrepreneurs and action takers that I've met in a very long while. Today we're going to unpack exactly what the heck is agrivoltaics. I know you have asked that question yourself if you've come across this term. And why should you care? Along the way, you'll get some insights into the career path of an unwitting solar warrior and climate champion who learned to leverage his corporate training and macro visibility into not just the energy, but broader market to bring economic and environmental prosperity to rural America. I hope that you subscribe to the show because that's how you can ensure you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Tactical, practical advice and deep insights into founders' stories from over 600 different episodes. You can find all of it at my Suncast. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I mentioned, Dan is a recovering corporate lawyer known for his intense candor and his uh, U.S. work focused mostly on energy, environment, and economic development. He's the founder of a company called DB Foresights, which we will talk very little, if any, about today. Uh, It's a global advisory, however, translating megatrends in economics, energy, and environment into actionable intelligence for industry stakeholders. As the CEO of Brownfield Listings, you may have heard him on one of our peer 
podcasts. My friend Benoit interviewed him for Solar Mavericks way back when, I think episode 46, if you want to go check that out, we'll link to it. His trailblazing work is helping fix broken markets and manifest new investment for brownfields into brightfields. And it's open opportunity for thousands of projects across the country. But as the founder of Brightfield Productions, he's produced something that you might have heard of recently, both the Virginia Solar Summit and the Solar Farm Summit, both to great acclaim. Dan, super stoked to have you on the show today. Mr. Johnson, thank you. It, thank you. It's an honor. Um, and congrats on 600 episodes. You referred to me as a chief, but uh, you're one of the OG chiefs. And uh, we're all grateful for your voice and your leadership and your platform, giving others an opportunity to shine, you know, over a decade on now. So thanks for being uh, an originator and a, a market maker in your own, your own sense, a market maker in the marketplace of ideas. Thanks, brother. I appreciate that. You know, I really uh, have enjoyed getting to know you and, um, I think I, I shared with you, I'll share this uh, publicly, that there was a, min- a minute where I consider, considered myself sort of an event creator and I saw what you were doing with this Virginia Solar Summit. And I thought at the same time, I need to get to know this guy. And I'm also sort of intimidated by him. Who is this Dan French and, and what the heck is he up to over there? My hat's off to you, man. You've really created both simultaneously and I think probably unintentionally if, as I get to know you, a name for yourself, not something that you set out to do. Um, you, like our friend Byron over at Jack Solar uh, Farm, are not in this to try and elevate the grandeur of Dan French. Uh, and I truly appreciate that. Uh, I want to kick it off the way I have been uh, doing lately. And I thought it'd be fun because I, I, I've said at the beginning here a couple of times, yeah, I do this thing because I've got my quotes on my desktop. So for those of you who are watching on YouTube, I do in fact have quotes on my desktop. This isn't some bullshit Nico says. As you can see here, the quote that has cycled through for this 30 minute segment at least is from none other than Mr. Zig Ziglar. And it says, everybody says they want to be free, but you take the train off the tracks. It's free, but it can't go anywhere. I'd like your first, your take on that quote. And then second, any quote that particularly inspires you? Yeah, I'm a, I collect quotes um, myself, um, I appreciate the, the constructive uh, view and the, the historical uh, uh, reference in that, in that quote. History does rhyme. I think uh, we've solved a lot of problems to get to this point in history. Uh, rail was a big deal. It killed steamships. Abraham Lincoln wanted to, I'm from downstate Illinois, did a lot of my growing up down there. Abraham Lincoln, before he ran for president, was a downstate Illinois lawyer on the circuit. He wanted to expand the Sangamon River to get to St. Louis. Um, and they almost did that. Big infrastructure plan. But then railroads came just just on the, just right after, and no one needed steamboats anymore. Um, but for me, I mean, I think a quote that I hang on to a lot is actually uh, Isaac Asimov, big fan. There are no catastrophes that loom before us, which cannot be avoided if we behave rationally and humanely. I want to work backwards here because the thing that you have become known for to me, and I will selfishly assume that that also is how others have gotten to know you that are not directly involved in solar and brownfields, is this thing called the Solar Farm Summit and agrivoltaics. You blew the doors off uh, at the Solar Farm Summit in Chicago this last year. I think way oversubscribed in terms of attendance. Raving fans coming away from it saying, Dan and team have done just a phenomenal job. Um, what the heck is agrivoltaics? And why did this little followed or understood trend in uh, sort of trend in quotes distract your attention uh, away from the other work that you were doing? Thanks. I appreciate the, the kind words. Uh, I work with a great team, a small and, and mighty band. We've been working on these kind of land use issues, uh, real estate development, redevelopment issues, um, focused on a lot, as you mentioned, brownfields to brightfields, trying, you know, 
land recycling. You can't do anything else with a landfill, but put solar panels on it. The degree of difficulty is higher. The cost may be a little bit higher, might need a little bit more insurance. Um, but we saw agrivoltaics kind of coming in, dual use solar, agri-solar, uh, agrivoltaics. It goes by many names, but it is about making use of the space underneath the solar panels. So not necessarily roof rooftop, but all ground mount. Enrau uh, would throw in greenhouses too. But if you're growing something or grazing something under the solar panels, um, we think of that uh, as, as kind of the science of agrivoltaics at work. We think about it kind of cutely in three buckets. Uh, agrivoltaics is crops, critters, or conservation. <laughs> so proper crops could be corn, soybeans, could be fruit. And uh, grapes, which, which actually thrive, could be critters. Mm -hmm. University of Wisconsin-Madison is looking at cows under the panels, as is Rutgers. Wow. Um, but sheep are actually already taking off. We don't have enough sheep in the country already. We have solar developers who are breeding their own sheep because they figured out that sheep, they're not only green, they're not only uh, productive for the soil, and they are great foragers. Um, they actually help with wildflower pollination, but they're actually cheaper than lawnmowers as well. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the economics makes, makes sense right away. Um, I think if we're, if we're looking for kind of one phrase agrivoltaics, it's the combination of photovoltaic and photosynthetic processes into a single synergized system. Uh, it's, it's solar panels and agriculture working together um, in some capacity. Um, there's, there's debate, a lot of debate about exactly what agrivoltaics is yeah. uh, around the country, around the world. Details matter, particularly for going for grants. And that's the really exciting thing. We're going to find out what agrivoltaics means very soon. There's a new bipartisan bill, SB 1778, if snuck into the farm bill, perhaps, which will expire at the end of September. Um, it will task USDA to define what agrivoltaics is. Um, and I think there's $15 million annually for five years for grants and research um, to actually level up, to lean in, to to make agrivoltaics even more more real than it is, and I, you know I have to give a lot of credit to Senators Heinrich, a Democrat from New Mexico, and Senator Braun, a Republican from Indiana, who like Brownfields have found another one of these concentric circles where everyone agrees um, that there's a public sector role to play to enable to catalyze the private market, um, and this is exactly what good government uh, achieves. I love that you uh, had already set me up to. No, uh, I should read into uh, SB 1778. Of course, we'll link to that in the show notes for y'all to go and read. It's eight brief pages. Uh, trust me, this is one that you really should go read, uh, if for no other reason than Senators Heinrich and Braun and their team have, in fact, uh, as of May 31st, 2023, introduced the bill and the definition of agricultural takes. I'll read it for you. Uh, the term agricultural takes system means a system under which solar energy production and agricultural production, including crop or animal production, occurs in an integrated manner on the same piece of land through the duration of a project. I, as well, to the extent, well, first of all, thank you, Senators Heinrich and Braun for listening to Suncast. I don't know why you're listening, but I appreciate it. Um, and so th since you are listening, I just want to thank you personally as well <laughs> for, for introducing this bill. And all congressional uh, staff. On, yep. And, and if you're part of their congressional staff, uh, truly, you are the uh, the yeoman uh, helping Sherpa this important legislation into the halls of Congress. And uh, the, the important work that Dan and I uh, and the rest of our, our cohort in the solar industry do um, really does depend on the success of the mighty few who have the ear of our congressmen. So truly want to thank those who are taking civic action to inform our congressmen and to, um, and to help them separate the wheat from the chef. I think a lot of that work is also falling to on the shoulders of today's guest, uh, you, Dan. 
I appreciate you saying. Oh, I'm not alone. Um, you know, that bill, big shout out to Dr. Stacy Peterson, who's running the AgriSolar Clearinghouse. Um, AgriSolar Clearinghouse, you got to check that out. Nonprofit, incredible group. Um, you know, again, like, like you, Nico, driving the marketplace of ideas forward. Um, and also American Farmland Trust, you know, who's banging on doors on Capitol Hill too. Um, as I know, we'll talk more about, you know, this is real. This is happening. It's real jobs. It's real economics. It's real value add. Um, and, and that's why everyone's getting excited about it across the aisle and frankly, across the country. Man, can I borrow that uh, as, as our slogan, driving the marketplace of ideas forward? I love that. Please, <laughs> Dan, license freely, my Dan friend. French You've earned it. the credit. Uh, you, we will talk a lot about the terminology of this Renaissance man, in particular, the word I just used because you use it a lot. A lot. Um, but I really want to ask, so we've defined agrivoltaics and it is a, I would say, controversial, not in nature, but in scope. It's a controversial term because people want to be able to carve out their own niche in each and every market and sector so that they can uh, do what economics does, uh, dictates, which is make money, uh, <laughs> helping make this a market. Why should I care about agrivoltaics? If I'm a solar project developer, maybe take it from the perspective of various stakeholders, solar project developer, mayor of a town, uh, farmer, and maybe there are a few other stakeholders you'd introduce there. Why should I care? Isn't this just another way to put solar on farmland? To work backwards, perhaps, this is not about just putting solar on farmland. This is about upgrading the farmland. This is about crop resilience. This is about conserving water. This is about improving soil health. This is about restoring biodiversity. If we're just doing the conservation bucket that I mentioned, this is bee and butterfly oases. This is restored prairie. Um, I'm from, again, downstate Illinois, and just in the news uh, a couple months ago, we had a flash drought, still drought conditions in many parts of the countries, and a mini dust bowl. It kicked up enough dust to create blackout conditions, and there was a, a multi-car pileup, like 80 cars on I-55 South, and seven or eight people what? were killed. I come from a family in farming, and uncle's still farming, um, and we've fed, we're feeding 8 billion people this way, but our, our monoculture, our dryland farming... If there's too much heat and not enough water in the wrong place at the wrong time, we're still getting, we're, you know, bad weather is kill, getting people killed. Droughts, and we've talked about fires too, but we've got many dust bowl conditions and maybe we need to go and, and go, you know, patchwork. But um, thinking, putting on my developer hat, it may be very soon, maybe it's already true that unless you're talking about a multifunctional or, you know, dual use project, uh, the community will not approve it. You know, NIMBYism is on the rise. Mm. Um, I was, uh, in Richmond uh, recently and heard about uh, Fauquier County denied three solar projects in one evening, in one meeting. And they complimented the submitters. These are the, some of the greatest proposals we've ever seen. These single-use projects, um, there's, there's just increasing pushback and concern. A lot, a lot of it is legitimate. There's conspiracy theories about chips in the panels and radiation and pollution leaching into the soil. But, but genuine concerns about aesthetic or losing far, actually losing farmland, which a lot of first-generation solar projects did. Um, but just to shout out, uh, you know, one specific project in Colorado, it got axed, a Guzman Energy project. But then they changed the O&M plan to include grazing, to include, include native species, and they got their approval. So I think Agrivoltaics is already saving projects today. It comes with an incredible stack of benefits, um, some of them externalities, ecosystem services. Um, but we have communities that are facing stormwater and erosion issues. These things act like sponges and soak up the water. Um, if you care about bees and butterflies, you, you want to do this in your community. And by the way, if you drive by, they're beautiful. Catch them in bloom. And it's some of the most beautiful, you know, open field, open, functional, breathing field that you'll find anywhere. I could go on, but I, I, there's many, many other hats and perspectives. 
but I, I miss jobs. I, you know, we're going to need a whole generation of solar grazers, mobile vets. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there. I love that. Um, what, if, but what about you? So you mentioned the community will not approve it. Talk to me about the community, because I think that this is where a lot of solar developers who don't come from a purely real estate background, the way that you do, or who have worked with brownfields, which have to directly engage with, um, I'd say in some cases, kind of intellectual, if not hand-to-hand combat with the community to try and redevelop sites. They miss an opportunity to better understand the long-term impact this asset has on the community. Absolutely. And uh, maybe very soon investors won't be buying single-use projects, uh, by the way. Uh, as a, uh, you, You're going to have to go in and fix them later. And I, I'm hearing more and more of these stories about project failures. You know, we, we did rush. Unfortunately, there's too many first-generation solar projects that are failing or set to fail with climate change coming on, with record rainfall, with record washout. We didn't really think about the, the vegetation management. Yeah, what sort of failures, just so people are clear? Well, I've seen washed-out roads. Um, and then there was a big nine-figure case in Georgia, federal case, a federal jury awarded $135 million uh, next door to a, a multi, a very large solar project. The vegetation management failed and it washed out a trophy property, a pond and stream next door, a neighboring property, just 22 acres. The actual damages were in the neighborhood of 10 or 11, maybe $12 million, but the punitive damages were, it was a nine figure judgment. And, you know, being an attorney and being a real estate developer, a kind of meta developer, you know, we have the most jokes about us. And in the community, we have the worst reputations. People don't want to talk to lawyers and they're, they're very skeptical of developers. And, you know, we, uh, we have to uh, approach like porcupines in mating season very, very slowly and carefully. Uh, this is where I think the Brownfield experience is really u- useful because we're not reinventing the wheel here. You know, Brownfield's created a necessity. There is a lot of extra public engagement that has to happen by law after Love Canal after Silent Spring by Rachel Carlson, you know, started bipartisan. It was Nixon that created those playbooks are there. Those, those community engagement tips and tricks. I would encourage everyone check out EPA's Brownfield program. Um, it's amazing. Go to the Brownfield conference. The big one's in Detroit this summer. Um, you can go see how people are dealing with some of the most problematic projects like super fun sites. People really care about this stuff. Um, but my advice would be uh, begin with the end in mind to borrow some Covey wisdom there. Um, put the land first and the community first, work backwards like brownfields, um, because you're gonna, you, you can't wait till the end. You can't wait till the, it's going to blow up at the closing table <laughs> or at the approval in the, in the meeting. If you're, if you don't engage the community first, if you're not coming with how this, this is going to come back to the community when it's done, um, you're, you, you're probably not going to get your project approved. <laughs> yeah. A, a fellow, uh, communicator and, uh, Virginian, uh, and friend. Mike Casey from Tigercom has been also beating the drum here on community engagement uh, on behalf of uh, some of his clients in some cases, but also just generally noting that across the aisle, it is, it is accepted that we, the, the cause of sort of energy resilience, the opportunity for domestic energy production through renewables uh, is something that is a bipartisan uh, issue and that NIMBYism is real, right? Um, just a, a hat tip to the work that is happening. You mentioned some of the folks, that, but the work that's happening to raise visibility, not just in the communities that solar and other renewables are good for the community, but to the developers that they can't ignore the same communities that they're building these. They can't just go uh, sort of lock up. We used to industry terms, lock up property and interconnection queues and then make these big PowerPoint decks and sell their projects to Brookfield 
and uh, and next era and move on without any consideration for the local community and the impact. Um, you've spent. Well, we will back into eventually some of the um, some of the career that led you where you are, but you spent a lot of time uh, thinking about land use. What's so compelling about combining solar energy and agriculture that's animated such a strong passion in you to accelerate the adoption of this dual use practice specifically? Thanks, Ed. Never intended to do uh, real estate. Didn't take a real estate law class. Uh, never intended to do brownfields and just fell in love with it. Um, the opportunity to eliminate negatives and accentuate positives, flip something that's upside down, literally negative value and turn it into a positive. Um, the studies are clear. It raises values miles away. You can, you can look at the ripple on the map. Um, and I've been in those public meetings. People cry. Uh, you go do redevelop the biggest property in town, this albatross that's everybody drives by every day and runs them down and you turn it into a vibrant community center. And you're changing lives. There's nothing quite like that. So, so land use for me, my passion, you know, began in this crazy world and noise, and we don't know what the future is and how can we, it feels so, so big. And I see, I see the young people now and a lot of people they're they're defacing art. They're throwing paint on yachts, um, which I, I salute your passion, but we need electricians and we need people to put up more solar panels. We need to solve these problems. And sometimes it's polluted groundwater. Sometimes it's a it's an eyesore in the community. It's a nasty Love Canal Superfund situation. But for me, agrivoltaics, this next level of the land use renaissance, we're solving for abundance. We can optimize for crops. We can optimize for critters. We can save the bees and butterflies by optimizing for the conservation, as I met, mentioned. So that it's this stack of value add. It's it's I've rare I've always looking for solutions, and I've rarely found this just total bundle that's ready to go and merges industries with their own momentum. And there's a lot of, perf- we, the reason that the Solar Farm Summit was such a success, um, we move by moving others, first of all. We have a, cla- a catalytic model, but there's so many professionals already already doing this work. And some of these things like bees and butterflies, people have been doing right, the right away movement. Lady Bird Johnson, you know, we've been working on flowers and bees for quite a long time. It's more about just coming together, crystallizing the forward vision, um, executing together, exchanging these best practices and getting our best projects built. You know, you've mentioned a lot of benefits and a lot of it for the data minded may feel a little touchy feely. Um, I know our friends over, uh, well, I, I won't even mention specific developers, but we know developers who've leaned really heavily into not just practices, but measuring the effect of those practices. Uh, are there specific data related studies that we could point to that actually prove yield uh, or uh, or site or community benefit to agrivoltaics? There is pushback, genuine concern. Is this just greenwashing? We hear this a lot. And frankly, the fig leaf on a lot of vegetation management that we've seen so far is kind of greenwashing. Some of these single-use solar farms, the, the soil is destabilizing, the vegetation is gone. But yes, to make it real for people, I, I talked about microclimates earlier. Let me, let me give you my favorite study because there is a tremendous amount of research um, that's being done. It's been done. Agrivoltaics uh, has really been around since the 1980s. But my favorite study is the University of Arizona, uh, Professor Greg Barron Gafford, who's very Googleable and has a lot of great stuff out there. But they at Biosphere, Biosphere Two, uh, they speaking of brownfield, they repurposed uh, Biosphere. They under the solar panels, they grew peppers and tomatoes in this microclimate, which can cool off the ground uh, in the neighborhood of 10 degrees Celsius. So they doubled the tomato production 
while only using 70% as much water. They tripled the pepper production while only using half as much water. So when we're thinking about climate change coming on in the world getting hotter, we're thinking about heat domes in Mexico and the Southwest or China uh, breaking records or India or Sub-Saharan Africa or Australia. We need shields uh, to protect our crop production and agrivoltaics provides that answer. We can cool the ground off. There's less evapotranspiration. Plants sweat. If they get too hot, like you sweat, and if you sweat, you can't grow, basically. If a plant gets too hot, uh, it's not growing and it's not producing fruit or veg veggies. So it kind of freezes. And if we can create more ideal conditions, conserve water, then like the peppers, we can actually, we, they tripled pepper production with using half as much water. Tell me we can't feed 9, 10, 11, 12 billion people, even with climate change coming on, if we start to get serious about agrivoltaics. They're doing it in France over uh, grapevines and you, they don't mess around with grapevines in France. They're doing it for qualitative gain. They, they, they actually, some of these, the new tilting systems, they're hooking up to AI or, or a real time monitoring and adjusting the panels and the light to give the grapes ideal conditions. So they're making better wine with agrivoltaics. That's so cool. And when we introduce uh, machine learning to this, it's going to be like the yield is going to again, double or triple. It's an, it's amazing when we're able to, I mean, think about this folks, <clears throat> and this is cool. Um, a lot of folks kind of like to denigrate the oil and gas industry, but a lot of the wonderful innovations that we have uh, in the world that is now taking over sort of everyone's psyche, chat GPT and like generative AI, a lot of the original AI and ML came out of like government projects and oil projects trying to optimize for how to reduce costs of uh, of well exposure, right? Like basically drilling and not finding anything and, and how to figure out. So I think that a lot of the work that is... Um, that is going into just making the world smarter and more efficient is thanks to the electric revolution. Um, and now that we've got this sort of data and, um, and AI revolution at the cusp, when we combine those two, uh, we're imminently at the place where, uh, to use your word, we have a renaissance in food production and civilization uh, stability. The ability to generate electricity on site is part and parcel to that. And uh, legacy energy is is moving in in a big way. They have the money, they have the expertise. Let's let's talk about BP uh, and LightSource. Uh, they're going huge on agrivoltaics. They have an agrivoltaics director. Let's talk about Shell buying Savion. They have a director of agrivoltaics and farm operations. Um, they're raising their own sheep. Or Baywa, a European company who's coming to the United States. The utilities, uh, shout out Dominion, who's got a big solar grazing pilot project that they're scaling up in Virginia. They're also doing a lot of offshore uh, wind um, and and really leading the way. You had Robert Blue, actually Bob Blue, uh, on the show recently, and that's okay. You know, uh, capitalism has its uh, good things and its bad things. One of the good things is they are agnostic. Mo the money does flow like water, and as long as there's profits, they kind of don't care. And that's why they're stranding. We, we almost have a new generation of brownfield problems. A lot of the fracking wells they're being stranded because um, they'll just leave this stuff behind and invest in the new thing. <laughs> we have to take advantage of that. Um, but there is also a new way of thinking. I'll, I'll also say a lot of the big developers, instead of, you know, buying and flipping land, they're or buying, flipping projects, they're buying land. They're holding on to it. Maybe, maybe carbon credits are around the corner. There's a new economics of the land. We're literally not making any more of it. And eight, nine billion people, and then many, many hundreds of more in the middle class, like the entire global economy is about, as we become old men, Mr. Johnson, annual global GDP somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred trillion, you know, it's going to be you know, 200 trillion and 300 trillion. I, I don't know when, <laughs> or it won't be a straight line. 
Um, but I remember when people were making Dow 10,000 hats and thought it was a joke. And now Dow is 30,000, whatever. So the world hasn't blown up yet. Um, I see a lot of constructive problems. Um, but this, what we're talking about right now, agrivoltaics, there's a medical renaissance. That's, that's somebody else's podcast. Um, but a lot of solutions, not, not in the forecast, not a projection in the pipe. You mentioned growing up in rural Illinois. Talk a bit about the, the family environment that you grew up in, the community. Um, and I'm curious in particular, if you can trace back to sort of the career path that you have taken, any of the early foundational milestones that may have indicated the path that you were headed. Absolutely. Um, my mom was in high school when she had me. We kind of grew up together. You know, they were out in the world. It was a different time. Before we broke new oil and gas uh, production peaks recently, it was the summer of 69 when U U.S. oil production peaked and we kind of had a decline after that. People were waiting in line for gas in the 1970s like my old man. But, but a scrapper and an entrepreneur, him and my mom both, I learned a lot of lessons from that. He was a scout. Um, we camped, we hunted, we fished a lot. And it was all about craft. It was all about skills and tools um, and a lot of MacGyver action, you know, making things work. I didn't realize I was kind of prepping to be a brownfielder, you know, working with whatever is there, working backward with what you got, making the best of what you got. A lot of that sunk in in my career. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I knew the world was changing. I wanted to get into the global game. Globalization was hot. You know, it was kind of coming out in the late 1990s. So I decided, you know, do I go in the military? Got some military family. Um, a lot of people wanted me to go into politics. I thought, no, I'm going to go to law school. I kind of punted. <laughs> you know, I found a lot of things in university that interested me. I studied economics. I studied science, language. I took an awesome history of the prairie class. I read a great book, uh, Ecological Imperialism. So about, you know, Europeans taking their, their pigs with them to the islands and the pigs causing as much destruction as, as the actual, you know, germs too. Uh, another book I love is Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, which won the Pulitzer. So I knew all those pieces, the big macro physical hardware pieces of the world were changing, but I, I wasn't sure. So I just, I was like, you know what, let me just keep getting smarter. Let me get more skills. Um, and as I got into law school, found a knack for, you know, transactional law. I focused on tax. And I didn't really love it, but I knew that it would get me in the game. I, was, I could do it. I was good at it. And uh, after law school, I got a master's of law. I took off to Europe. You know, I had kind of bought in the belief that America was in permanent decline. The EU was super hot at the time. There were more IPOs on the London Stock Exchange than the New, the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the dollar was going down. The euro was going up. They had, you know, 100 million more people in the, in the common market. And I wanted to understand the, the new EU supranational experiment. And that's what eventually got me into Brownfields. BP, I, I was looking for a job in the EU, but British Petroleum found me, hired me back to the United States where I got a crash course in real estate, a crash course in Brownfields. So I was doing due diligence on billions of dollars worth of real estate. But I found my true passions, as I mentioned at the top of the show, fell in love with Brownfields, saw how you could you know, flip things upside down to right side up and, and create real, real, tangible, undeniable, unspinnable opportunities for real, um, mo real movement of, of the board um, for Republicans, for Democrats, for the unaffiliated. Like, how are we going to build our way out of this? Um, let's start with the worst. If I can, if I can at least eliminate a lot of the planetary negatives, maybe we'll, we'll have a shot. I want to go into this, the area uh, of your time with BP because I think it was really instructional and, um, and foundational for who you've become. But uh, I'm curious before that, is there any particular career path that you did not go down, but always thought you would? I thought about the military a lot. They recruited me pretty hard, even in law school. They wanted me to join JAG. There was this idea, you know, Matt, 
Mad Max would be here by 2020. We'd be fighting over the last tank of gasoline. Peak oil was huge. You know, the resource wars arguably had already begun. We were in Iraq. Uh, we were, you know, the, the global footprint of the U.S. military. We were, we were very much interested uh, in, in securing global trade, global supplies. Even Alan Greenspan, you know, kind of admitted that the Iraq war was ultimately about oil. That's why it kind of had jumped, jumped to the top. And so I thought, you know, a lot of my friends went into the military, my best friend, best man in my wedding. I'm divorced now. Um, but, uh, you know, he was in the army. So, so I kind of felt called to that after 9-11. I'm from the 9-11 generation. But no, I was, I was drawn to economics and the deal. The stock, my dad was always investing and, and watching a lot of financial news. I'm still watching a lot of financial news, I think. It's, mo- it's the most unbiased. It's biased in a financial sense. The culture wars can, tend to stay out of it. But I would recommend people don't watch the news. The news cannot be watched. Um, turn off the cable news. You got to read. Nico, I know you're a big reader. You got to read books. You got to get to those primary materials. You got to read the reports. You got to click through and get to that stuff and understand it yourself. That's one of the big things I learned as a, as a young person. Keep keep accumulating those skills. And then I would also say, kind of pulling some some threads together, my advice kind of for young people is don't be afraid to go into big corporations. I see a lot of anti-corporate movement. And I too, when I, went, when I got a job at VP, there were some of my friends, because I grew up kind of tribal, rural, uh, and, you know, I was wanted to save the world super green. You know, we had a garden, you know, we canned all that. And so when I went to work for the big bad oil company, people were shocked. Some of my friends, how can you do this? But what I quickly discovered is that there's a lot of good eggs inside, uh, even our biggest, dirtiest corporations. They're doing the best they can um, with the opportunities. There's a lot of structural inertia that, that's hurting us, stru- structural forces. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of a lot of the, a lot of my friends still in big companies that are look look at us now. They're leaning in. They're thinking differently. There's a there's a new conscious capitalism that's that's taking over. And so I would I would recommend if you want to make things happen, uh, don't be afraid. E- even if it's a temporary journey, like for me, I was at BP five years, about ten months after the spill. Um, but I learned you know so much. I think you're right. It, it was it permanently changed the arc of my career, and I met great people. I had great mentors. Um, shout out Jessica Gonzalez, who took me under her wing, you know, showed me what real due diligence is about. And I, I definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I wouldn't be doing agrivoltaics if I hadn't got into oil and gas. I'm going to borrow something that you shared with me. I don't know that I would pull this out of the ether, but Gordon Gecko uh, said, if you're not inside, you're outside. Talk to me about the conscious decision of a green sort of environmentalist going inside the belly of the beast to understand the levers of power, to infiltrate the system, so to speak. You weren't uh, particularly orienting your career towards energy or in particular, even land use or real estate. Talk a bit about the, the decision. You just said you encourage, as I do, most young people to go get the experience of big corporation because it will inform so much and also broaden your network. It'll inform so much about how you view interacting with those same big corporations once you're out of them. Give us some feel of like that five years that you were at BP and what you learned or took away from it that helped you further develop your career and uh, and sort of move towards the work that you do now. Yeah, definitely thought a lot about it and stood on it before I accepted, but ultimately wanted to get inside. I wanted to see, uh, find out for myself. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, <laughs> but if you, you know, can get in. There's just no, there's no substitute. If you've ever been on a team, even a basketball team, you know, you're the only ones that really know what happened. We're, we're all kind of on the outside, um, guessing. So yeah, you know, last man on the deal team kind of, you know, rose quickly. I had, I had, uh, some it experience from, from growing up with my parents and some of their businesses. So I was able to kind of a digital native, I guess I was able to 
pull a lot of due diligence together, work with the business units. It maybe was the beginning of my career as a producer, uh, uh, spinning so many plates at the same time and, and whatnot. And then I think discovering what I sometimes call the reality of the iceberg planet that we're on. You know, most of the action is actually happening below the waterline. If you haven't signed the NDA, um, if you weren't if you weren't there, you know, sometimes there's only a handful of people who actually know what the decision making really was or what they were looking at at the time. Um, and I think we're all conscious of that in our own lives. We see, let's say you are watching the news and they're covering your profession. You're like, that's not right. Um, but we forget that everything is actually like that. You know, 1776 is my favorite year, not just because of the Declaration of Independence, but the Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, he talks about, you know, one pen maker can make one or two or three pens a day, maybe 10 pens a day, but 10 pen makers can make a thousand pens a day working together. And so I think even Adam Smith would be shocked at the level of specialization that we're all experiencing uh, in this modern world. There's another term I like, a book from the 70s, future shock. So our little brains are just not capable of processing all of this information that's thrown at us. And so again, it's the real strength of getting in, getting your hands on something, even you know, once removed, getting your hands on the primary materials, there's no substitute for that. Only, only you will know. And again, being in in-house at BP when the spill happened. And, you know, I walked in that morning, I was actually unplugged off the grid. It felt like a funeral. I was like, what's, what's going on, you guys? And then you turn on the news, you know, and then there's protesters outside. And then, you know, you're getting the corporate emails um, and people are taking their decals off their cars. And, you know, it, it sucked. I, I ultimately went into BP because we were beyond petroleum. Remember that? <laughs> we had the Helios. Uh, we were spending a fortune on all fuels and all that. And the next, I woke up one day, we were the biopolluter and, you know, broke my heart. Paralegal's crying. She's getting harassed by her family on Facebook. Those are tough days. But at the same time, in that exact moment, uh, we're getting our teeth kicked in. You know, I saw people like my boss, people started rotating down to, to Houston, down to the control, you know, the command center at absolute heroics, you know, spent $20 billion in what, a couple months and did the best they could. But this is the, the real opportunity is I got to explain, you know, to folks why it, peak oil was real. The conventional supplies we were running out. Why? Why do you think we were, you know, had a bil billion dollar rig, renting it from Transocean, paying Halliburton two million dollars a day to run it to, to shove a roto router under the sea and then under the earth? You know, talk about degree of difficulty. It's because and wh why were we in Iraq? Because we really were maybe on the edge of scarcity, running out of stuff, not being able to feed and power the planet. But looking at unbelievable energy transition. We even had one flash oil boom, the biggest oil boom we saved for last under the Obama administration. We doubled oil production and brought on even more natural gas. And maybe Boone Pickens uh, will ultimately be proved right that it is the bridge fuel. It did, it did buy us uh, time away from mega ultra inflation because we were worried about oil going to $500 a barrel and staying there. Um, those Mad Max scenarios seem so real on the big boards at the time. Um, but now look, Right during fracking, what's happened to solar, wind, batteries, and now agrivoltaics? We're talking about doubling, tripling production under the panels using less water. We can do it in the desert. Oh, I mean, it's it's hard not to get you know really excited about that picture. Um, and I'm I'm very grateful for for all all my mentors and colleagues who've been you know help me help me get there because it's you know it's kind of like a dream, Nico. We got a lot of work to do. We can still mess it up. Mr. Johnson, but, uh, but you've seen, you know, through 600 episodes, no one has seen the progress, you know, like you, and we've come a long way. Those are much harder conversations to have back, you know, 2010. That's true. I remember in, um, <clears throat> what you just referenced, uh, a lot of folks that have followed along will know through my various sort of 
turn the mic interviews that in 2013, 14, 15, I was in Central America and, and Mexico and Caribbean, South America, developing solar projects. And I remember, never forget this, sitting in Daniel Otis's office, the founder and CEO of Kawa that owned Conergy. My job was to try and find projects that he would invest in. And they were looking for projects in Central America that would be you know, double digit unlevered returns because that's what was expected for uh, developing nations. Uh, to compete with the um, sort of six to eight percent unlevered returns here in the United States. And he looked across the table and he said, um, you're asking me to make a bet against a future where $50 barrel is the norm. And this is 2014. And he said, I just can't do that. He said, I'm not, I'm not deep enough in the oil industry to make that bet. And what I see right now is that we're headed in that direction. And I don't know how long it's going to stay there. You know, to his credit, there's at least five years of uh, uncertainty uh, and turmoil seven seven years before it actually got back to a hundred dollars a barrel, but it dropped down to I think thirty five or forty dollars a barrel. It's crazy. Anyway, I I'll, I well remember uh, the. <laughs> I mean, I love where this conversation has gone because it is a you have to look at history to predict the future. And you know, one of the ways that you have done that from a, from a predictive um, aspect is the deep work that you did in Brownfield, some of the times that you and I have chatted, you've referenced um, what I would expect from a corporate lawyer candidly and the kind of thing that most, I feel, colleagues who don't have corporate experience don't ever really get access or glimpses into, the idea of playbooks, the idea of the way that things are done that accomplish and move product, project movements along, right? It's something that's well-established in corporate uh, environments in the halls of BP and uh, Procter & Gamble right? How to affect change, how to get congressmen on your side, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a bit about the Brownfield playbook, so to speak? Uh, and are there lessons from that redevelopment experience that you had at BP that might translate into useful solutions for solar uh, as you really scale up this product? Yeah, great question. We touched on it just a little bit before, um, but BP, I, you know, we always got local counsel. I think that's a great place to start. The Brownfield playbook, you know, one of the key frameworks is just Thinking local, acting local, starting with the locals, including the locals and Brownfields Pollution Superfund, it's required by law. That's definitely a key piece, you know, for corporate America. And I'm glad to see that that orientation is changing. But it works on the other side too for our community friends who are listening. There's a lot of communities being passed over because they're looking at you and you look uninvestable. And again, money flows like water. Um, so you got to prep, you got to prime. It's in brownfields, it's important for the buy side and the sell side to get active. You got to shine up your brownfields a little bit. That's why the brownfield grant program is so key because it just pays for that first test. There's a lot of developers who don't want to spend $20,000 only to find out that they're going to have to spend a million more to clean it up. And so that's where the public sector role comes into play. But it's more about a way of thinking, you know, adaptive reuse. Uh, we can't, there's no pretending. We got to deal with a brownfield as it is and we have to work backwards. Um, so it's kind of the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. Uh, but it's very, you know, it's real and it's necessarily collaborative. It's going to take everybody. It's going to take the banks and the money, the politicians and the neighbors. And that way of acting, that way of being, um, that way of thinking is, I think, very instructive and structural. These are kind of process changes that you can make at a high level. A lot of community, a lot of corporations are doing this. ESG has been a helpful force in this regard, you know, hiring the right people. There's a lot of debate about ESG, but, you know, I am the E in ESG. Or I felt a lot of that. These environmental things, these externalities are real. If, if groundwater is polluted, it's real. And so that, that kind of realistic or uh, sometimes uh, describe my uh, work, you know, it's, it's functional, functionalism. 
You know, is this going to work? No. Okay. Let's move on to the next thing. We're not coming in with preconceived ideas. Um, there's, there's no room for, for politics, right? Frankly. And also the benefits are real. You're solving those real problems and adding benefits, whether it's the jobs, whether it's the environmental gains or whether it's the, the wider community benefits. And this is why, you know, the Brownfields bill uh, always sails through 99-0 in the Senate. Republicans and Democrats kind of all, all agree. So, yep, we got to renew every, I think the last four presidents in a row have all renewed uh, the Brownfields bill and then it's gone mainstream. Uh, so I've pivoted away from Brownfields a little bit because it's kind of mission accomplished. You know, Brownfields got in the bipartisan infrastructure bill and now in uh, the IRA, even DOE has cleanup money now. Because um, we talked about NIMBYs and agrivoltaics before, but the only other thing that NIMBYs really love, other than dual use, happy little sheep under the panels, is eliminating some of these brownfields and landfills. And frankly, you know, again, working backwards, shout out BQ Energy, Paul Curran, first person I saw putting solar panels on landfills. And I was like, that's it. Because it's an end use analysis. You, what can we put there? We have to work backwards. We can't put a daycare there. What can we put? And in a lot of t- cases, we had nothing. We had nothing. We had nothing. But then solar came along. And that, that source of demand has been the only thing that's moved brownfields that would otherwise be trapped in limbo. Yeah, I remember. Be, I remember. I'll never forget the first time I saw. Uh, and it was mind blowing. Uh, there was, I believe it was in Georgia, a landfill. And a lot of these landfills are capped with this butyl membrane, right? It's like rubber membrane. It's thick and it is going to be there for a million years. It's meant to trap everything inside. And they have these vent pipes and it generates natural gas. And, and that was the first sort of dual use of these landfills. And then we were able to take this fairly rigid material known as not silicon photovoltaics and turn it into a flexible material through companies like Unisolar and a smart developer said, wait a minute, this stuff sticks to anything. And they literally stuck these solar panels onto this butyl membrane in the, uh, in the fields of a, of a landfill in Georgia. And it blew my mind. I was like, man, we are truly seeing a renaissance in how used, the land is used and how electricity is generated and how um, we decentralize the economic engine that is our utility infrastructure in the United States right now. And I think around the world, um, you mentioned you know, both running the Brownfield playbook um, through agrivoltaics and how the Brownfield uh, Act uh, always gets renewed, 99-0, like nobody's got a problem with it, bipartisan. Um, how is agrivoltaics ringing a lot of those same bells right now? And uh, and after, you know, I want to hear just generally what you see happening and who is championing it on the, on the Hill. Um, and then uh, I'll follow with a question around bottlenecks. Yeah, it, it checks a lot of the same kind of boxes, um, eliminating negatives, accentuating positives. I've mentioned you know, a lot of the uh, economic, environmental and energy benefits, I think we're all kind of familiar with those. But these agricultural gains are, are the, the next layer. It's going to carve out an exception. Even if you're against solar, kind of can't be against agrivoltaics because a lot of the things, while you might be against large scale solar, agrivoltaics actually either solves that problem, leans in and has a solution or makes, makes it better. And we're seeing in countries around the world like France and Italy now, they are already carving out agrivoltaics exceptions or they're actually saying thou shalt not build solar on farmland unless you do agrivoltaics. And so, you know, we're, we're staring at a future very soon, whether it's just driven by the pure economics or whatever, the, the era of single use solar projects is about to expire and we're pivoting forever, all projects probably, to dual use or multi, multi-functional use. And so, you know, for, for Democrats or for the, the left, the green, that whole side of the ledger, 
we can talk about all those things. We can talk about the soil still breathing, the bugs, the bunnies, the butterflies, Bambi, uh, bee and butterfly oases, right? Or, or genuine agriculture, or even just instead of lawnmowers, sheep. That's a win right there. Or the restored prairie that I mentioned before, anti-dust bowl remedies, <laughs> de-desertification strategies, which by the way, the Chinese are the ones really scaling most of this stuff because um, 80% of China is a desert. They wear masks for the pollution, but it's actually also the dust, particularly in the Western provinces. And they just don't have any fresh water. So, th so they're going big on that. But on the other side of the house, you know, the Republican side, the economic side of the house, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the money, um, you know, this stuff pencils. I didn't mention it, but uh, vegetation under the panels actually cools the panels a little bit and improves their performance and improves their, their operating life. So there's true synergy and symbiosity here, but the sheep save money on the lawnmowers, which we love. Um, and then the vegetation is really an insurance policy against these project failures. Could be a judgment or could just be local fines. Stormwater runoff and erosion control are really big issues for local communities. And they have that power going back to Magna Carta, you know, the old common law, locals rule. So they wanna see this stuff. And then, but, but really I'm getting into speculation now, but when we think about maybe another green revolution, green revolution in the agricultural sense, in the 40s with chemicals and, and combines and tractors, but a new clean green agricultural renaissance, putting a lot of jobs in rural America again, communities that have been kind of cut off and starving economically. Um, and by, by the way, a lot of great, a different kind of jobs, jobs outside, solar grazing, vets, uh, botanists, ecologists, all these things come to bear. And by the way, they are local. So these are local projects. Solar grazers are not coming from out of state. Um, and ultimately, we're talking about that dream. There's that great book, Five Acres and Independence, from back in the day. My parents always had it on the shelf. And we really are coming around all the macros together. This land use renaissance may be bringing back family farms. Maybe, maybe not five acres, maybe 10, 20, but with a little solar, a little, a little berry patch, a little pumpkin patch, and you go down to the farmer's market. Um, maybe you can start to hack out that kind of life again and, and push back against this megatrend we've seen, you know, Earl Butts, USDA secretary, fence row to fence row and plant as much as we can. Farms have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but I think big farm, it makes sense for big farms it, and it might open ways for new farms uh, to kind of emerge with what we're really talking about is dual rents. You take the same land and you can sell the power or you've got your solar lease and then you're growing something under the panels as well. Well, so, so literally double rent. I just found, I'd never heard of this, but I just found Five Acres of Independence, a handbook for small farm management PDF on Reddit. So I'll link to that under the subreddit self-sufficiency, by the way, um, as one might expect. Look, this all sounds great, but as we know, nothing uh, goes so, so, as smoothly as we want it to, even if it's 99-0 in Congress for, for brownfields. But w what are the bottlenecks right now holding back wider adoption of agrivoltaics. Great question. Thank you. And yeah, brownfields, we haven't gotten all the brownfields either. It's still very hard. The degree of difficulty is still very high. And this isn't, I don't want to sound too, I'm not just writing it on my unicorn, uh, throwing rainbows at everybody. It's still going to be very hard. The, the cost of these agri agrivoltaic systems is a little bit higher. The cows like to rub, cows like to scratch. They're going to lean on these things. You got to go way up. It's going to take more steel, more concrete. So the upfront costs um, may be higher. There's these knowledge barriers like any startup, right? We can think about, we can go through the queue, the prisms of barriers to entry. I think knowledge and education is, is a huge piece. This is where USDA, tasking USDA, turning USDA loose. You know, they're one of the biggest government agencies. 
They have people almost in every county or maybe every county. And we have extension, all the land grant universities who many of them, University of Minnesota, Illinois, Purdue, Cornell, Oregon State, um, they're all, they all have agrivoltaics. I, I mentioned Arizona earlier. Hopefully we can solve that, that knowledge barrier very soon. Um, we have kind of the infrastructure for that, but then policy too. You know, federal policy, if we can somehow sneak 1778 into the farm bill, that would be great. But we still have layers of state and local policy um, that, are, that are super relevant for solar project or any kind of real estate development. And so we, we have some of those, a lot of education to do uh, at the decision-making level, the policy-making level. Um, but I think even without too much, unless we're talking about moratoriums or bans, I think the economics are so compelling that if we focus on the economics and the educational pieces, the awareness that the agrivoltaics revolution is, is actually already underway. In addition to the folks that you've already mentioned, uh, are there some key people and organizations that we should be paying attention to who are activating this agrivoltaics movement? 100%. Many. There's, there's a, a wide chorus. You know, I mentioned DOE is getting activated, NRAL. National Renewable Energy Lab, many nonprofits, some of the best nonprofits that I think we've ever seen. There's AgriSolar Clearinghouse uh, is one. I'm, I'm sure we can link to all these after the show. Uh, there's an American Solar Grazing Association, ASGA. <laughs> uh, you, could get some, you should definitely get some of those folks on the show. Go to their website. Tremendous resources. They even have sample contracts. Um, so you can go out and get your hands on this stuff. American Farmland Trust, which a lot of folks know, they're starting to lean into it, not just lobbying. But real programs, they have the smart solar principles. I, I mentioned some of the universities and pilot projects, but there's a Colorado Agrivoltaic Learning Center, um, which actually pairs with, they do a lot of work with Jack Solar Garden, our friend Brian, Byron Kamenick. And then I'll shout out the OG uh, across the seas, uh, Fraunhofer Institute in Germany. That's, uh, they do a lot of different things in sustainability, um, but they've, they've had one of the longest going ag agrivoltaics programs. And it was one of their gentlemen who defined the term agrivoltaics in 1982. So you can actually, a great place to also find breadcrumbs, I know we'll share it after the show, but on our website, solarfarmsummit.com, we put something together called the Agrivoltaics Index. It's just an old school index with like a thousand links. There's links to some of these foundational groups at the top. And then we did a like, it's, it's like almost we curated a Google search and you can scroll through like articles and research papers, just keep scrolling down. There might be a thousand links, uh, all Agrivoltaics and, and links to a lot of the people, so many breadcrumbs, public and private. Um, that have already done a lot of this work. I love this. So given that this is something that we are more or less adopting from places around the world that are more land and resource constrained than uh, the, than America, the land of uh, the free, um, the brave, um, 40 acres and a mule, uh, the, the real American dream. How does this American renaissance, so to speak, really stack up globally with Europe at war and China on course to do way more renewables than we could actually even fathom in the United States in the next few years. How do you see the global competitive landscape? Since 2010 or so, I've been uh, unusually constructive on the, the North American uh, economy. We're the most independent economy. 95% of U.S. GDP is within North America. 90% of U.S. GDP is domestic. 95% of U.S. GDP is U.S., Canada, and Mexico. It's very much unlike any other country in the world. They're much more dependent on global trade. Um, and we have tremendous, uh, almost embarrassing natural resources, natural abundance. We have the largest inland waterway network in the world, the, the greater Mississippi. It's the cheapest form of transit. It intersects the largest highest quality arable landmass in the world. We're the largest agricultural exporter in the world. We send more stuff to feed the world than anyone else. Do you know who the number two 
uh, agricultural exporter is? It's Holland. Yeah, I was going to say Dutch. It's, yeah, the Dutch. <laughs> it's <laughs> so tiny. You might think it's Brazil. That's kind of a cute a fact because they're doing a lot of cut flowers. Yeah. So the volume is very high and fruits and a lot of other. High and is Brazil things. third? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't want to lie to you right now. I'm not sure. But but my main, main uh, takeaway point there is that, you know, without the U.S., there isn't much in global food trade. And then we can talk about freedom. We can talk about the universities. We can talk about Silicon Valley or the Silicon Prairie. Uh, there's many hubs of innovation in the United States now. Record co- profits on Wall Street. We have 10 million, going on 11 million open jobs, twice as many open jobs as people looking for work. Um, we have positive demographics. We actually have a millennial generation, which the rest of the world simply does not have. Uh, and least of all, China. Um, so people fancy them as, as long-term planners. And in many ways, they are. I have many friends in China. But the one-child policy, you know, they've programmed depopulation, very hard to grow your economy, just the way money works with fractional reserve banking. Japan is a good kind of foreshadowing of this, the way that they started to deal with depopulation. They had their peak. We thought that Japanese would buy everything in the 1980s, um, uh, but they've, they've been printing money, quantitative easing, you know, the longest and the hardest, and they're maybe just starting to, to come out of that now. They are very land scarce, by the way, and the, they have the most agrivoltaics projects. They have very, very small farms and maybe three or 4,000 little agrivoltaics projects already in Japan. But China... If you give me just a minute, you know, I, I'm, I have good things and bad things to say. How does their renaissance compare to the American renaissance? They, they have, you know, a saying in China, the great renaissance of the Chinese people. Um, they're very proud. They've, they've brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Um, it's a, the Chinese economic miracle is very real. Um, since the 1970s, you know, becoming the, the exporter of the world. But unfortunately, um, we can look at the history as you at the top of the show. You, me- you mentioned history and I mentioned history rhyming, you know, export led models. All the curves always look, we can pull up the United States, we can pull up Brazil. Um, there's always a peak and then it declines. Um, their population has peaked. They've actually restated their population. They've maybe overcounted by 100 million people. Um, so they've pulled forward all that, you know, the, the, the Chinese population, maybe half of what it is now in the 2050s or 20 by 2060, um, China, 80% of China is a desert. As I mentioned, they're the largest agricultural importer by far. China can't feed itself. They're also importing 80% of their energy. Many of it through the Straits from the Persian Gulf. Um, they're very stretched out. And then if we're looking at their economy, which I, you know, I've worked, uh, you know, in and out of directing a lot of, uh, capital investment globally, um, the money has started to, to flow out of China. Their, their exports are collapsing. Um, they haven't really, they're not coming out of the pandemic very well. Um, and they've been leaking manufacturing jobs to lower cost producers. Their wages have caught up. And so Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, India are starting to, to pilfer that. And of course, the American uh, Renaissance is stacking up greater industrial activity than any time we've seen since World War II. Think about all the EVs, the chips bill. Uh, it's not just solar, wind, batteries, everything's on fire right now. And unfortunately, um, you know, China, in a, in a very good way, in the best way, boom, boom. Um, but, but in China, the boom is kind of over. It's kind of an echo now. And they're going to go through some combined form of, you know, depopulation, deindustrialization, which we really have, you know, no, no map for. There's no playbook for that. However, I will say, thinking again globally and, and the lesson from the EU and Mr. Putin's strategic mistake, you know, there's been a lot of talk that the Chinese and American relationship is, is, is been boiling over. Maybe China will invade Taiwan. Um, but I don't, I think that is potentially off the table. 
Um, it's a huge mistake over open water. The Ukraine invasion is not going very well for Mr. Putin. They had a coup. Um, it, the Chinese system, it's a one-party system. It's a communist system. Xi Jinping is in, is in control and social cohesion, social stability you know, is very high uh, on, on the list. And so the risk of invading Taiwan, I think, is diminished. And I'm very happy to, to see um, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, visiting China. I'm very happy to see Janet Yellen recently visiting China last week. Um, and I think we're starting to see actually something that I've been very down on China, a lot of analysts, a lot of economists, but I'm starting to see actually now, just in the, just recently, the last few weeks and months, a thaw of the U.S.-China relationship, a pivot away um, from conflict. Um, there's been this idea of decoupling and the new, the new key word um, that you'll hear officials talking about is de-risking, de-risking the Chinese-American relationship. Because the truth is we need each other. And even last year, despite the ter- tariffs, beside the trade wars, all this, U.S.-Chinese trade still hit a new all-time high in 2022. So let's grow our way out. Let's sell each other stuff. There's no need to fight anymore. Uh, I, I don't want to say world peace is on the table, um, but there's too much growth uh, in the forecast. Uh, there's too much to do together to fight amongst each other. One of the things through the bipartisan um, and uh, I would say wildly successful is definitely the largest investment in infrastructure we've seen in the last 60, 70 years, maybe in history, is that what it creates is not unlike FDR's Great New Deal, right? In that it's that that sort of movement uh, post-World War was meant to put people back to work. And what we saw in the United States was a deindustrialization because we gave everything to uh, to the third world countries like China and Mexico um, to reduce our labor costs and uh, saw that bite us in the ass. Um, and now we're bringing it back home. But it begs the question, how will we staff this revolution? How will we staff this infrastructure build out? Uh, what are you seeing or thinking about with regards to workforce and job development? It's a key issue, maybe the issue. Um, as I'm checking off all the, all the boxes, economically and environmentally, we've got all these solutions I've mentioned, but we don't have enough people. It's a people power problem at this point. I mentioned over 10 million open jobs and it's been like that for a decade. We've had a skills mismatch and it's choking growth and you can go company by company. You can read some of the 10 K reports. Um, everybody's talking about this. It's only getting worse. Less immigration hurts on the margins. It's just a fact. Um, the robots are coming, the drones are coming, all these things will be helpful, but we're still not going to have enough. And so, you know, I encourage your voice, encourage you and your voice. You already do such a great job. Uh, I, I think a lot of young people listen to the show kind of for tips and tricks and yours are explaining how you're doing things too. I wish I appreciate that, that insight into the process because you never know what's going to land with people. But I hope, you know, some of my Chinese remarks, my macro view, um, this existential dread, this idea that you know, forget about the future because there is no future. Uh, I, I'm strongly of the opinion that that is not true. I am not an optimist by nature. You know, I grew up with a half a prepper, you know, <laughs> we had silver and beans, you know, uh, just in case. But I think we are solving for abundance. I think the growth is there. And again, not, in, not a projection. It's in the pipeline. All these factories, all these things, we're going to go build these things. And unfortunately, it's going to take new minds too. Unfor- you know, we can talk about clean coal burning, but there's no clean coal extraction, um, lit, you know, lithium, these things, rest in peace, John, good enough. But no, I hope every young person listening to this just leans in, finds a piece of sunshine. There's so many things to do, whether it's solar batteries, wind, 
growing food, going back to land. Maybe you don't want to be in an office. Um, all those things are going to be on the table. Maybe it's medicine or maybe, maybe it's tech, maybe it's bots. Um, I'm glad to see a lot of the high schools doing the robot fighting competitions. Now we need a nerd army. <laughs> the faster that happens, um, the more electricians, some of it's the trades, a lot of it's the trades. Um, we need, a, it's an all above all hands on deck situation to make, not only defeat climate change, uh, before the shot clock runs out on us, um, but build our best planet, maybe some jets and stuff, the flying cars. There's, there's dozens of prototypes now. FAA is working on new, new road, new rules of the sky. <laughs> and Elon is started this space race. And we're talking about now putting the industrialization of space in the pipeline. You know, what are, there's 2000 space startups in the Valley. Now I might talk, talk to many and get pitched. Uh, a lot of them are resource companies. We're going to go up and bag some of these small asteroids. We're going to grab our lithium up there in our zinc. Uh, and a lot of rare earths um, are not so rare in space. And with these new big rockets, we're talking about 100 tons or 200 tons per launch to orbit. That's as much as a 747 or two. 100 tons is a lot. And so like trains, I, I love your quote. We started out talking about trains. And have we invented space trains? Not quite. <laughs> but seven, recyclable 747s to orbit. And we're going to start to put a lot of dirty industry in places where there's no bees or butterflies or spotted owls. And if you, if you listen to Jeff Bezos talk about getting to a trillion humans with a thousand Einsteins and a thousand Beethovens walking around, he's thinking about doing it in space. Most people will not live on the earth. We're going to turn the earth, and this is my language, you know, into a nature preserve, just condos and coffee shops. People will visit. After we go get every single brownfield and repair all the damage of 400 years of industrial revolution, with this land use renaissance, we're going to have a clean, green, totally restored planet with a lot of fish in the ocean and clean air um, for our children. And they'll be limited only by their own imaginations and potential. Dan, I uh, I just love the profound nature of the conversations we always get into. I can tell that you're a deep thinker. Uh, as a result, I know that there are lots of resources that you've drawn upon to inform your way of thinking. You, you are one of the folks that I look to and think, man, this is somebody who's not only ingested, but digested the content that he's consumed and really come up with his own thinking. And I appreciate that about you. For those who are just at the beginning of their journey, I'd love to know, and maybe this is just related to agrivoltaics, but what reading and resources have you relied on that have given you the insights you utilize as you continue to build out these catalytic events and information centers that you build? Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. um, I, I read, a, I read a lot. I took a speed reading class. I wanted to get better at reading. No way. Who'd you, who was the speed reading class? Uh, I don't remember. I got a, a, like a flea sale, a, a flea market. And no uh, I was like 18 or 19. I was like, I'm going to college. I read, read as much as I can. Um, and again, I, I mentioned skills before. That's a skill. Develop yourself. Take naps. The science on naps is clear. You break, you're, you're, it flushes your brain cells and then they're, they're ready to go. Um, don't burn the midnight oil has big costs. And some of these, some of these tactical health things, longevity is a term everyone should Google. The science on that is clear. Dr. David Sinclair out of Harvard. Oh, dude, his, his book and his podcast are absolute must reads. So go to those people, find those people. I mean, obviously you can find a lot of great stuff on YouTube, um, but there's, there's great books. I mean, shout out Tom Weirich, uh, wrote, wrote a great book uh, about clean energy. We, you know, we took the risk, quick, quick little history of, of how we got there. Yeah. I don't know. Some of my, my, I was a big Buckminster Fuller fan. So maybe my favorite book is critical path. It's a little dated now, but it's, it gave me some of that mechanical view of the planet, you know, the ship in a bottle, the earth uh, 
as a living living kind of machine and humans as a software. And I mean, to the extent that I'm I'm plugged into mainstream news, um, again, it's a lot of print print media. But I am a Bloomberg guy. I'm listening to maybe Bloomberg Radio in the morning, watching a little Bloomberg television, watching the action. You know, people can talk a lot, but actions speak louder than words. And corporations, you know, they're filing those 10Ks. Read those. Read those primary materials. Watch what people are actually doing. Watch where the money's flowing. And that will tell you more than anything else. We've got so much more that I know we could talk about, but I want to bring this to uh, to a close for now. There are loads of folks, I'm sure, listening who uh, have been inspired by the way that you think and the thing that you're about, and they want to engage with you uh, and help in some way or participate in your events. How do you like to be found? What's the best way for folks to reach out? Thanks. You can find me uh, and my incredible team at solarfarmsummit.com. Dan, thank you for being here. And uh, thanks as well to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Thank you. The future is bright. Well, that is a wrap on today's practical insights to this Solar Warriors journey. And uh, I'd love to know what you think. Dan is uh, in a league of his own in many ways. He is an independent thinker and someone who is active in more than the solar industry. It's something I really appreciate about him, uh, watching how he is thinking about really empowering and serving the solar industry has been empowering for me and, and liberating in certain ways. I hope that this non-traditional Suncast interview helped you get better oriented around agrivoltaics and uh, and even world economies. Uh, but I'd love to know what did you take away from it? We always post uh, over on LinkedIn, which you can get the link to that right in the description of whatever podcast player you're listening on or the show notes page if you go to mysuncast.com. Um, and, and click through to the Suncast Podcast LinkedIn page where we post about this podcast episode. I may have posted it as well on my LinkedIn page. But just leave us a comment, a like, and engage there. Let Dan know how much you enjoy and appreciate this uh, this episode. Um, and since you are, as I, always seeking to be continuously improving and learning, uh, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and links and books and everything else that we uh, that we mention in this episode uh, on the show notes page uh, or the episode notes page, I think is how we might call it now, at mysuncast.com. I'd like to thank once again our sponsors for helping make this content free to you each and every week. They front the money so you can front the time. You can learn more about their offers and who they are, what they do in the industry at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you could learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.